0: Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show, episode 285. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios Secret Invasion, episode 1 resurrection directed by ali salim written by kyle bradstreet and brian tucker secret invasion was created for television by kyle bradstreet and it is a kevin feige production before our spoiler review begins want to let you know about fan show plus that is the podcast that is exclusive to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash sean gerber or on apple podcasts if you search for the mcu fan show channel Or just search for Fanshow Plus, you can find that podcast and subscribe. Uh, Become a premium subscriber so you can get those episodes. Recently on Fanshow Plus, I covered Marvel Studios skipping Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con this year and how, in its own weird way, that could actually turn out to be a good thing, as disappointing as the news may be, and lots of other MCU-related topics on Fanshow Plus. So make sure you check that out at Patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. Or on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman?
1: I am settling into the new home and trying to navigate through everything that's been going on in the MCU and all the, all the all the switching around of release dates and all this other stuff. And what is, you know, trying to just kind of not worry about what this means and what that means and all that stuff, you know, it's just life is crazy right now. It's just like, I can't, I feel like I can't even keep up. Whereas like four years ago, I, I felt like more, I could keep up on things like really, really well. And now I'm just like, Oh god, I don't even know what's going on half the time. So, but yeah, but listen, I'm here because I love Marvel, Marvel Zombie, and I'm ready to dissect the Secret Invasion episode one release. Yeah, so.
0: well, speaking of Marvel release date reshuffling, I mean that's another opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about Fan Show Plus because it's covered over there. All those updated oh. release dates for Marvel Studios, what all of that, uh, what all of that stuff means, and really. What it ultimately means is we get to exercise even more patience, but we have really been working those patience muscles whatever. Those aren't a thing, but we are really working those over the past few years. But you're right, Paul. It is kind of tough to keep up because before anything actually comes to fruition, you end up seeing like a whole other set of changes. So everything is just kind of exist. I mean, I was laughing when I first saw those uh, the release dates shifting because I was thinking back to. And speaking of Comic-Con as well, how last year during Marvel Studios Hall H presentation, you and I were each in our respective homes following along and recording a podcast. And now almost everything from that podcast has changed or everything from that Hall H presentation has changed. Not necessarily things being eliminated, not like we're not going to see these things, but release dates being just completely blown out of the water. Um, But in any event, we're not here to talk about that. That's over on Fan Show Plus. Uh, But speaking of patience, it has been a while since we've been able to do episode by episode spoiler reviews. Obviously, we've done some um, over the past several months, but it's been for movies or Marvel Studios special presentations. We haven't been able to go episode by episode for a Marvel Studios series since She-Hulk wrapped up last year. So it's nice to finally have that with uh, to have that back. And that's what we plan on doing each week. We'll be here with you talking about the latest episode of Secret Invasion, beginning with this premiere, entitled Resurrection. And let's just go ahead and, and jump uh, right into it for uh, for this series. So we begin in Moscow, present day, and Everett Ross, as played by Martin Freeman, or so we think uh, it's Everett Ross, is there for a meeting with Agent Prescott, played by Richard Dormer, and Prescott is laying out a scroll plot where he thinks the scrolls are trying to create instability and ultimately cause wars and just ultimately take out. That's their grand plan to take out all of mankind. And here are all the inciting incidents that they've already done. Here is what they will do. Ross is skeptical, but he's also a scroll, as we will find out uh, by the end of this sequence. And um, I, he's really just there to see, as Prescott lays out, everything that he has uncovered. And when, uh, as the skeptical Ross is trying to sort of diffuse the situation, we get, Paul, what I think is one of the best line deliveries, not just in the history of the MCU, but all of acting, when Ross is wondering what people would be behind this. And Richard Dormer, as Agent Prescott, fires off, not people, <laughs> scrolls. The way he <laughs> says the word scrolls is my favorite way anybody's probably ever said anything. It is fantastic and a testament to the talent of one Richard Dormer who of course was amazing on Game of Thrones, but I I really liked this whole scene. Paul, and I know it it transitions into a chase scene. There is of course Prescott in at the height of his paranoia attacks Ross is killed by Ross Ross takes off, and we get this slow and then steadily, with the speed steadily increasing foot chase of Ross being pursued by someone we don't know, and the end result is Ross jumping for his life, falling to his death, and it turns out he's a Skrull, and the person chasing him was Talos and Maria Hill, who was accompanying Ross on this mission and was there to extract him, had no idea that she was working with a Skrull the entire time only knew that when of course when somebody dies and they're a scroll they turn back to their natural form and then of course Talos reveals himself uh in hit to show that he is in fact there uh, on this mission that Maria Hill did not uh, did not know about but anyway I loved everything about this introductory scene to this Paul because I I think that Marvel at its best when we think about some of the the best examples of Marvel Studios movies, Marvel masterpieces, if you will. And we think about movies like I think the one that everybody will automatically point to with this one because of the Nick Fury involvement and the the style, the tone. You obviously point right to something like Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And what that movie did so well and what a lot of the best Marvel movies have done and Marvel shows have done is they kind of go along the lines of what Kevin Feige has said in the sense that he doesn't famously does not believe in the superhero genre. Marvel makes all kinds of genres of movies and they happen to involve superheroes. I still think there is such a thing as the superhero genre. In addition to that also to Kevin Feige's point also being true. But regardless of that, it matters though when you, when you think about how you want to tell a story that you don't just want credit for being the superhero show and having the characters that people know and characters that people recognize, Give them a story in a particular space, and that space can be whatever genre you want it to be. And in this case, this is a spy thriller type of show. That's what Secret Invasion ought to be. I know that's very different. Um, There's a lot of things that are very different about this show compared to the comic book. It's basically the title and the involvement of Skrulls. That's pretty much what overlaps with this show and the comic book, but that's not the first time Marvel Studios has done anything like that, so we're pretty used to that at this point. So for the concept of this show and the whole spy thriller thing, I want it to look and feel like a spy thriller. And since you have six episodes, I want it to feel have I mean, I certainly want it to be its own fresh original thing. But at the same time, I also like the idea of it having some of the classic spy thriller tropes and some of that feel. And that's what we got in whatever the opening seven, eight minutes of this scene is. You get the paranoid guy who's laying out the the who's laying out the conspiracy theory for the skeptic turns out the paranoid guy was right to be paranoid they're not you're not paranoid if they're actually chasing you and then you get the the slow speed foot chase i love the visuals in this as ross is being chased up the steps you get the motion sensors on the stairway as the lights go on keep going on all of that stuff was just really good at building a lot of palpable tension throughout the entire sequence It gives the audience just a little bit of uh, a little bit of their footing, a little bit of exposition to say, here's kind of here's the jump off point. No pun intended for for Skrull Ross, but here's where we're jumping off in this story just to kind of get you a little bit up to date. But at the same time, obviously leaving a lot of mystery out there. So the way this one this scene played with the tension with these characters and the overall circumstances to start off this story I thought was really, really effective, and it, it put me in that headspace of I'm watching this paranoid spy thriller right now, not necessarily the alien invasion show.
1: Man, I forgot it was um, that guy was the the guy with the the flame sword. yes uh, what was his name? I always forget. I'm so terrible with names. Um, but good, I recognize him, and I'm like, who is that guy? Thank you for telling me that. Uh, this was a great introduction, and I think that. With the scrolls and and people who've listened to the show know that I'm not the biggest scroll guy. From the comic books to even the Captain Marvel, they, they're fine in Captain Marvel. I did like the the twist of the ideas of the scrolls, but this is more in line with this whole show. is more in line with what I know the scrolls to be, which I think is a little bit. which is cool. I think, honest in that sense of what these guys are these people i should say um are trying to take over this world because they are they are planetless and i I like that idea that they're keeping with and it is an intriguing plot line that's the the, probably the most interesting thing about the scrolls in my opinion um this introduction was very cool because like you said we we hear a lot about superhero fatigue and 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 marvel fatigue or whatever and it, it just i don't i don't believe in it either i really don't because i i like like Kevin Feige said, superhero genre is definitely a thing, but Marvel is is more than superheroes, as we know with Guardians of the Galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. This is another one of those things where you're bleeding science fiction with uh with that. Uh, superhero kind of idea. Right. And, and with the conspiracy theory, political thriller kind of a thing. And, and so it's, it's kind of like James Bond and like with shape shifting, I would say that's what it kind of comes down to. And I think this was a great introduction of getting people up to speed. Um, you have, you know, when you have, you know, the guy the, from game of thrones, with the flaming sword talking to Bilbo Baggins. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, you can't, you can't lose
0: at that point really. Um,
1: Everett Ross, I, I yeah. love
0: Barrick Don Darian. By the way, yeah. is the uh, like is, is the name of the character. Ah, God, well, I mean, but I'm, I'm glad man. you brought up the the scroll thing and the the difference between like what they are in Secret Invasion versus how they were presented in Captain Marvel. And and I did want to touch on that. Um, I really wanted to touch on that as early as we could in the show, which I'm I'm glad it came up in the very first scene that we get You're to welcome. talk about. <laughs> how convenient, but. <laughs> The reason why I wanted to talk about it is because I did see this kind of become a bit of a debated topic this week about the show and the idea that, uh, as almost as a criticism of the show, be saying as if the scrolls being presented the way that they are here in Secret Invasion undercuts or undermines, just undoes what happened in Captain Marvel. And I don't think that's true at all. I, I really don't agree with that. So, and I, I say this as somebody who loved Captain Marvel as much as anyone and really praised that movie very highly and, and still feel all of those positive things about the movie, as I did four years ago when it was in theaters. I love the the change that they did with the scrolls, but we talked about that, we've talked about that in the years since the movie. They did a brilliant job of subverting everyone's expectations and and having the Skrulls be these uh, refugees who were not evil. They were just trying to find, uh, they were just looking for a safe place to exist. And I thought that was a, a brilliant turn and a brilliant twist within Captain Marvel. All of that is still true. This is 30 years after all of that happened. And what we see now is division amongst the scrolls, where they feel, some of them feel differently, and are going willing to go to various extremes in order to seek home. And I know that means that some of them are obviously we have uh, an antagonist or a set of antagonists in this story, but I don't think that takes away from the scrolls that we met. And what their intentions were, and what some of, for some of them, their intentions still are, as we learned in Captain Marvel. I don't think it really changes those things. I think it just shows that, in within any group of people, there's going to be complexity. There's going to be differences in philosophy and opinion, and obviously, we're talking about a very heightened version of this because uh, in the backdrop of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that's all it really is to me. Like I, I still love and respect what they did, and admire what they did in Captain Marvel. But we talked about this the whole time that just because Captain Marvel decided for the purposes of that movie, they thought, hey, what if we just decided to not paint an entire group of aliens as uh, just let's not paint them all as bad. Let's not try to paint them all as, as evil and just trying to destroy humanity and destroy the Kree and whoever else. Let's go ahead and show that they can actually be different just because they said not all scrolls are bad. Doesn't mean that was a promise that all scrolls would always be good. So I I think that that's really it's what really Captain Marvel showed was it's not as simple as that, and you don't paint with those sorts of broad brushes and make those type types of assumptions. Like that was part of the messaging within Captain Marvel, and I don't think having the group that we see now in Secret Invasion changes any of that. In fact, what it gives them an opportunity to do, and this is the mission now, I think, or one of them within the remaining five episodes. As they talk about it, they highlight it. It's a 30-year difference between what the Skrulls as we knew them in Captain Marvel versus the Skrulls as we are getting to know them again and getting to know more of them in Secret Invasion. What happened in those 30 years to create this division, I think we're going to have that explored for us in the show. And so I think if they actually do explore that and you get a chance to see how people become different and how people go on these divergent paths with these divergent with these various philosophies, that's just has an opportunity to do good storytelling that can still have also its own strong messaging within it. So I don't think anything from Captain Marvel is being undercut or undone by what's happening now in secret invasion. I think it's all part of the scroll story in its own way. And we don't even know fully what the story is for secret Mm -hmm. invasion yet.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I thought I really liked about the series so far, also, is the fact that we, because I, I said before in the Captain Marvel um, review that I'm excited to know more about the scrolls because in the, in the comic books, it was Galactus who destroyed their planet. So it's like a deep cut of why they're planetless, right? And what they represent, because I think they represent this idea of like nature. And that they are—they are kind of a byproduct of nature, and they're just trying to do what um, what comes natural to them, which they want their home, right? And they are on a planet of people that they are basically like way more powerful, way more powerful than, and should basically basically enslave us, right? That's kind of what you know. And so to me, when I'm watching this show it's cool because we're getting that government, you know, we're getting the the government side, right, of the you know, FBI, like that whole you know whole thing we like when a soldier of and that whole conspiracy theory uh, aspect which is cool, but we add in the when you add in contrast the aspect of these beings that are more powerful than you and they want to take you over and there's a reason for that and they're, you know and they've been kind of been held at bay for what reason it is it is kind of like a more it's kind of it's interesting. I think there's an interesting story there that hasn't been explained by the comic books that, because in scrolls they've just been always the bad guys since, the, you know, the Fantastic Four introduced them. And they, just, you know, you turn them into cows, they ate the eighth cow. It's a whole thing. Guys. Yeah. Um, and then but then they're always bad guys here. There's like peace, period. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of rich storytelling. There's complexity. I th- Exactly. And I think that to me is where I'm like, really, I'm really intrigued by this because one, we're going to get this, we have these two very vast things of like controlled, like these people, the government of controlling people. Then you have like the super beans basically like we're holding back, but why? And it's, I don't know, it's 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 a different kind of what they're selling it almost feels like alienation from the 90s a little bit to me for some reason. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's crazy. a little
0: bit of that. There's, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. There's some yeah. of that stuff that that comes into it. But I think what you really start to see here and the question that really starts to kind of spark up when you realize how long it's been, because. It was this very hopeful thing at the end of Captain Marvel that they're taken mm-hmm. off on the ship off to find a new home, and Carol is leading them, and so every, you just assume that everything is going to go well. But clearly, it hasn't. Like we didn't even necessarily ask this question when we saw Talos and Soren again in uh, in the at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home, or then when we saw Nick Fury out in space with Skrulls at the end of uh, the post-credit scene for Spider-Man Far From Home, that didn't necessarily... We still thought everything was fine. Like, okay, well, some Skrulls have stayed behind to work with Fury. That makes sense. They're pals, and, and we all love the Fury and Talos connection from Captain Marvel, so we wanted to see that continue. So we're not really asking any of those sorts of questions, but this one, this show with this first episode and this first scene really does start begging certain questions <laughs> to be asked where and chief among them is if it's been 30 years and they haven't been able to find a new home that is suitable for them why isn't this planet suitable for them they can breathe exactly. they can breathe mm-hmm. our air um they and it's not even just so much that they're powerful enough to to push humanity around they didn't even necessarily show that instinct when they first arrived on earth 30 years ago it was simply, we'll help you find a new spot. And that doesn't necessarily address the question of, well, we here's a space right now that we can live in. Like, in theory, we can live here. There's not really any reason why we can't. Other, th- I mean, there are other reasons why, and I'm sure the show will explore them, why that may not have been the easiest transition to make. But nevertheless, the point remains that they could live here. And I think that that's where... Maybe some scrolls started to feel like, why are we trying so hard to hide ourselves all the time and hide who we are in an effort to find a new home when we could just say we already are home? We could just stay here. And anybody who gets in the way of us staying here, maybe that's a problem that we need to deal with. And so I, I think that yeah. there are a lot of questions that, a lot of really interesting questions that come up and get explored through these characters that even for the secret invasion antagonistic scrolls, when you talk about getting a chance to consider their point of view, their perspective, which is not to excuse, you know, a bombing that we see them commit at the end of this episode, but usually the best, most engaging superhero-based storytelling often has, you know, some very morally and ethically complex perspectives from the antagonist, where even if you don't agree ultimately or condone their actions... You at least understand why they did what they did and how they got there to, to the point where they can see themselves as the hero of this story, as Gravic and his group clearly do. Um, but we're not necessarily meeting uh, Gravic just yet. So after this uh, this great introduction uh, introduction scene, we get the opening titles. Obviously, I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of controversy surrounding the opening titles and that they were being generated by artificial intelligence rather than by human artists. I understand all of the controversy surrounding that, and I I understand why the director and Marvel wanted to have something that, um, that didn't look like it was made by humans and easy enough to produce something that wasn't actually made by humans, although humans are still guiding the artificial intelligence that's there, and there are human beings who were credited for the opening titles for Secret Invasion. Um, And at the same time, this is not going to be the podcast where we weigh in and and fully explore that issue. But obviously, at MCU Fan Show, we certainly support the artists who make the things that we love so much from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and and other places. And so certainly want to make sure that their uh, that their work continues to be honored, uh, respected and and treated as as invaluable as we all know, uh, of course, that it is now uh, moving on from that past the opening titles. We see Nick Fury. It's beam-me-down Fury in this scene, although it's not like beamed down. He, there, there was an actual ship there. He arrives back on Earth. He's been up on the space station Sabre, and he immediately looks weary. We see him. Uh, he's got a bad knee, and then he's picked up by Maria Hill, who gives him a hug. But right away, Paul, just this initial visual of Nick Fury... Is sending a message. And I I think it's a message we recognize from what we saw in the trailers for Secret Invasion that we are seeing a physically, but I think what is really surprising, the physically vulnerable Nick Fury is to be expected. But I think where this show gets more surprising right away in this first episode is that we are not just seeing a more physically vulnerable Nick Fury in the way that's just the basic trope of. He's you know the aging veteran who's been around forever and it's taken a physical toll and he's just not in the kind of shape that he's that he's been. We all understand that from a physical perspective, but I think this show is while it's still doing that and making that part of it, his his physical state is really more representative of his emotional and, and mental state going into this series where I think right away, what I picked up on in this episode, what really stood out, I mentioned when I uh, gave my social reaction to seeing the first two episodes, and of course I'm only going to allow myself for the purposes of this podcast to be informed by this first episode, I I mentioned how it was a, a, a very unexpected start to what could be an even more surprising arc for Nick Fury, and it really started for me in these first couple minutes that we spent with him, from what we saw when he came back down to Earth on the ship to a few seconds later... When we see this very emotional embrace, uh, you know, head to head of Fury and Talos, when uh, Fury is offering his condolences to Talos because Soren has passed away since we last saw them together in Spider-Man Far From Home. And that's just a very rare emotional embrace from Nick Fury. And it was more genuine. There wasn't an ounce of snark, I, I think, with Nick Fury, even when he's told people like Tony Stark that he cares about them like he told Tony in Age of Ultron, we know he cares about these heroes. We know he cares about the Avengers, but he never shows it as raw and as invulnerable of a way as he did with Talos in that in that moment where he was just connecting with this friend who lost his wife, and that's uh, another friend that Nick Fury loved. I've never seen that sort of emotion from Nick Fury. Seen it from Samuel L. Jackson. He can do it and plenty of other performances that he's given throughout his incredible career but we've never been shown that from Nick Fury, so getting that in the this very first introduction to show the physical, but I think more importantly the emotional vulnerability of Nick Fury and where he's at right now and how that probably makes him question himself as every, as a bunch of other characters are questioning him throughout this episode. Um, that was the the biggest. Never mind, you know Ross being a scroll, but um, although we should talk a little bit about Ross being a scroll and what we think that means, but. Uh, sticking with Fury for now, that was the biggest surprise for me of the entire first episode, not even the very last moments of the episode. It was the overall state of Nick Fury, but especially the emotional state.
1: I think, yeah, that was very surprising. And that, to me, is setting up a lot of things for the show eventually, um, because you brought up a great point. We haven't seen Nick Fury in this state, and there is a lot there's a lot of heavy theme, themes in this in this first episode with Nick Fury of that he's getting older. They've, they've emphasized that a lot, right? And they emphasize you know, the fact that he's, he's more emotional at this point. And I can attest, as I've gotten older, I've gotten way more emotional. I'm already an emotional person before as I was younger, but now I'm way more emotional It just... Is this happens as you get older. I can imagine when you're in your seventies, like, you know, Nick Fury is supposed to be at that point. Then yes, then it was get very emotional. Um, as my dad, is, is any indication that is 100% accurate. He's way more emotional than he ever was. Um, so I, I think that when, when you're, when you're showing this in in the first like couple scenes and you see him kind of like, you know, going back and trying to figure this out, there's a lot of things in, to me that I'm like, okay, they are, they are trying to establish that Nick Fury is going to go on some kind of arc because they ask him, like, what are you doing up in space? And we got an idea from,
0: uh, and why did he stay up there the whole time?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think we, we got the idea. We, we, we know that the blip played a part in this, right? Like that, that was the mortality was there because he, he is older and the blip kind of, kind of put that in perspective for him. And even though he's always lived on that side of like, he doesn't fear death. I think he's coming to terms with it more and he's trying to kind of grasp that. I think that's where that that's where they're going to go with this eventually. That being said, they have to really emphasize what why he was up there, like you said, Sean. And why does that correlate with his mortality? Because what I think that means is that I think he knows it's Nick Fury. He always his his lies have lies or his you know whatever yeah. what, what
0: his Tony secrets say? have secrets. Yeah, his
1: secrets have secrets, excuse me. And I think that's where I'm kind of trying to go with this because I think there is I think he knows something's going on in space and that could eventually lead to something else in the MCU besides the Marvels. I think there is I think there's going they're going to use him as a springboard again to a greater something else and that he knows about and maybe he kind of sees the end coming hell maybe it's galactus maybe he knows that like that's why the scrolls are you know were devastated i mean i'm I'm just spitballing here but something like that where i think he knows something's coming and he's just kind of grappling with it and he's just he's not going to tell anyone yet because it's just not quite there but he's but like he's got now he's got this right in front of him he's like crap but i think you're getting all of that in this kind of episode and that whole point of having him be emotional at the very beginning is to establish the whole idea that this is the arc that this is a different Nick Fury and he's a more retrospective Nick Fury. And we're going to have to get used to that fact a little bit because where he's going to go on, it's, it's his show, right? So he has to go on some kind of arc. It's, I mean, this it's for the most part, like every character going to go through. Yeah. Something, right? well,
0: and I think if you're going to make an entire show about him that revolves around him, you do have to put him in unexpected places and you do have to put him through things that we wouldn't necessarily be anticipating. And look, that's part of, that's part of the mission. That, that's part of where I think some MCU stories of late, and this is not to feed into the chorus of people acting as if the MCU's been terrible after Endgame. No, it absolutely has not. But in those few things that I feel like haven't necessarily lived up to the standard that we normally expect because that's how good Marvel Studios usually is, I don't necessarily feel, I mean, one example, we talked about it this year with Ant-Man, the Wasp, Quantumania. I don't feel it. I watched that entire movie. I've watched it multiple times. And I never felt like I knew more about Scott at the end of that movie that I didn't already know going into it, because I didn't really feel like he had much of an arc there that changed him, that had that put him to a test that made me have to discover something through the process of answering whatever that was uh, for that test that he ended up coming out of it a a different or changed person or learned something about himself that therefore I learned as an audience member and deepened my connection with that character. That, I felt, was one of the misses of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and that's also part of why I was so excited about these first couple episodes, but really just this very first episode is, I love this. I love taking a character who you know and expect to be a certain way and putting him in, and presenting him in, in a very different way from that and allowing us to then discover how did Nick Fury get there? Because they're certainly building up mystery around it in the same way that we want to get the answer to the questions of what happened in the past 30 years with the Skrulls to where we have Gravick and this other group versus the way they were presented with Talos in, in Captain Marvel, how did Nick Fury get to this place? Because we haven't really seen him, right? We didn't see him. That wasn't him in Spider-Man Far From Home. That was, I mean, only at only in the post credit scene on the on the out in space. And that didn't really tell us a whole lot about Nick Fury. Right. And when we talk about and we saw him post blip at Tony's funeral, which he was just there, of course, paying his respects to Tony Stark but that we didn't get anything from him there in terms of we didn't no he didn't have any dialogue there to check in and how does Nick Fury feel about everything since he came back from the blip we haven't had any of that and i think that that is something that for nick fury obviously going through i mean essentially for those people who blipped they died and then they came back and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's going to impact everybody in its own different way and and for nick fury a huge part of nick fury's story has been control, right? Mm-hmm. And he's been the one who has been, you know, the spy as tony called him. He's been the one who knows everything, secrets have secrets, he knows everything. And that doesn't mean he can't be he can't be betrayed. It doesn't mean that people can't get one over on him uh, briefly as we saw happen in Captain America: The Winter Soldier, but I think it was very that nick fury was always able to offer him and help author his own comeback in Captain in Captain America the Winter Soldier and in any of the defeats that the Avengers had, like Age of Ultron. He gets to swoop in at the end with a helicarrier being like, here you go. I'm I'm still here to help out, and I still got a lot of ways to help you guys um, in order to prevent or in order to combat whatever threat it is we're facing. He didn't get to do that in Infinity War slash Endgame. He didn't get to do that in the blip. He was gone and he had he was not the reason he came back. All of that came all of that happened without him being there. And that's not to say that that's it's all pride and ego. I do think Nick Fury has an ego, so there's probably some of that, but I also think that as somebody who really thrives with the 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 illusion of control to have that removed from him, to be disabused of that notion and to completely lose control in in that situation Maybe he feels like he never had it and he's never going to have it. And this is just me psychoanalyzing Nick Fury and I'll stop here because guess what? They got five more episodes to actually do that for me in a much better, more artful way. But I think that it's it's very fertile ground to really explore on a creative level that I think, as I said, the goal of a story like this should be to deepen, one of the goals anyway, and one of the key ones should be to deepen our connection with these characters. And I feel like by stripping away the mystique of Nick Fury and putting him in this very vulnerable space, it creates intrigue. There's mystery there, but also there is a very, there's it's a very key opportunity for us as an audience to connect with this character in a way I don't think we've previously been able to, because Nick Fury has kept us like he's kept everyone at arm's length, and now that's not happening, um, and so I, I think that's going to be really, really interesting to explore, as, uh, as the series goes on. But mm-hmm. anyway, Talos fills in Nick Fury on, on what's happening. And, um, and there's, and they, everybody asks him this question, Talos, like you disappeared after the blip, what happened? And that was something that was, it was hurtful for Talos. It was hurtful for Soren. It was hurtful for Gaia. It was also hurtful. We don't necessarily know why for Gravik. That's our antagonist played by Kingsley Ben Adir who is running the show now and got uh, Talos kicked off of the Skrull Council. So that's another part of the reason why things have changed, is Talos was one of the leaders of the Skrulls, and now he doesn't really have that same role or that same authority. So what does Gravik want to do? Gravik, as Talos explains, wants to start a war. Um, he wants the whole world at war, so humanity takes itself out and the Scrolls take over. And the main thing that he wants to kick off is a war between the US and Russia which as we learn is going to be based on framing the Americans against Russia for a bombing that will happen later in the episode and i said at the top paul i wanted to see some classic spy movie stakes and to go right there back go. into cold war stakes there's there's no more classic spy movie stakes than the threat of a war between the US and Russia that's going to ultimately escalate to you know world war 3 that ends all humanity so mm-hmm. um i certainly wish there were no longer any real world parallels for a lot of that but um as far as what's happening in in the realm of uh, in the realm of fiction this is very familiar territory but i kind of liked it to me uh, i this is classic spy movie stuff of the whole world's at stake in these really small corners of it with these you know with these little conversations that are happening that then escalate into these big action sequences that we see later on at the end. This is just classic spy, uh, spy genre stuff to me. And I was totally up for it.
1: Yeah. This is what I would say too, is that the feeling of this series is already much different than, um, a a lot of things we've gotten in in any MCU show. And I think that when you, you, when you go into, I mean, every, every show I think has a, a uniqueness to it. It's just execution obviously is a, is, a diff, is a more debatable thing, but I think this right here is definitely tone wise. Everything is very much unique to a lot of different shows, um, and movies that we've gotten. Um, obviously winter soldier is probably the, the best you can compare it to, but even then there's, there's that sense with captain America as, as a protagonist and, and you, you're sent around a super soldier, of, you know, it's, 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 I don't know, it's a little more it, that superhero aspect. This is completely, um, you know, keeping in line with that science fiction, heavy science fiction with, with that conspiracy theory, uh, idea. And the contrast is very unique and it's interesting. So it, it is a very fresh take of what we're getting from the MCU for sure. And it was definitely nice to, uh, kind of get, kind of go deep into that right here.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And then um, one quick aside is we do uh, catch up with Rhodey, who's now in a position of working directly with the president of the United States, President Ritson, played by Dermot, uh, Dermot Mulroney, which ultimately is enough to give us the explanation of Fury and Hill and Talos. They are not operating with any of the authority of the United States government or the protection of the United States government or military or any of those assets or any of those resources They are totally on their own. And in fact, this is something that the president is not happy about and is dispatching Rhodey to basically deal with this. We should not have Nick Fury just out here operating as a wild card um, whom we do not control. So, um, and that's all we really get from that portion of it for this episode. But I liked at least checking in with how Rhodey is going to enter into this story, but then also just a status quo of uh, showing us this this other President Ritson in the MCU, because we know there's going to be a different President by the time Thunderbolts comes around, and I know there's been a lot of speculation on what's going to happen to this President uh, within the context of this series and, and stuff in the trailers, but we'll leave that to the side for now. Um, but I I appreciated that check-in nonetheless. Uh, Fury, meanwhile, is going through a stroll through Moscow, gets himself captured so that he can gain an audience with Agent Sonia Fallsworth from MI6, played by the amazing and incomparable Olivia Coleman. And they are veterans of this game, of the spy trade, and Fury is hoping that will allow him have the mutual respect that will carry him to a place where they can collaborate and compare notes. But he already kind of expects that this is not going to go his way. That's why he bugs the office with a camera and a microphone uh, so that he'll be able to check in later, because as Fury anticipates and the bugging demonstrates this, uh, Fallsworth is not on board with a collaboration. If for no other reason, then she doesn't really believe that uh, that Fury is up for it. And this is a recurring theme throughout this episode. Talos questioning Fury and why he was up there the whole time and the idea of Fury leaving and, and not coming back. And here's another version of it from another perspective with Falsworth thinking that Thanos's snap changed Nick Fury and basically implying that Fury has kind of gone soft with this idea that someone someone bigger and stronger is ultimately going to beat him just like Thanos did. And maybe that's why Fury is, is not operating with the, ty- the force of will that he used to. And I don't really know that Fallsworth is, is exactly right in how or why Fury changed, but... I don't think that's really what matters most here. What matters most is what we've already seen. So we're not, it's basically having all these other characters tell us as an audience, you're not the only one seeing this. Everyone is seeing this, that Nick Fury for some reason has changed. He is different. And we've already seen him before this conversation happens with Fallsworth. We've already seen Fury acting differently than we have in just the first few minutes we spent with him uh, in this episode and but I think what what I like about this scene though is because they've already shown us that, and that's why showing things is more important than telling. It, it's not enough for Talos to say you're different. It's not enough for Falsworth to say you're different. It's that when she, when Falsworth says that Fury is different, we've already seen it. We've already seen him acting in a way that we're not used to seeing him act. So that allows us as an audience to really worry that she might be right, that maybe Nick mm-hmm. Fury really isn't up for, it really isn't up for this. And I know we can be cynical and say, we know the how stories work, that things are not going to go well for Fury. And then ultimately he's going to discover the Nick Fury within and he's going to go and he's going to save the day like he always has. And maybe that will happen, but really it's about the journey of getting there. And that journey becomes more interesting when you don't, when you can't take that destination uh, quite uh, you can't take it really for granted um, or at least counter our cynical attitudes of what we think we know about stories and how these things work and I think they do a very good job of it in this episode because when Fallsworth who you would imagine throughout their their respective careers has probably had a lot of respect for Nick Fury and to show that that even though this is a character we don't necessarily know Olivia Colman adds a lot with the presence that she just automatically brings to it so I think that's what really has it working so well for me is regardless of her, whether or not her reasoning for Fury's motivations and everything is exactly right, the point about Fury maybe not being up for this, that is something that she's worried about. And we have reason to think that she should be worried about it.
1: Yeah, she was a character that I really liked. And I love the chemistry that um, she had with with Nick Fury. And... And and honestly, their conversations, and I think this this stuff we're, we're getting was definitely more. It, it was just nice to have character building in in these interactions than we than we've gotten in other movies or TV shows that felt very natural. And I think that it was nice. It was nice to kind of see that in perspective. And again, the whole like you know, don't trust anyone, and how like Nick Fury kind of did that on purpose, and 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 she kind of knows that too, right? I mean, so like, there's. I like this whole game of chess that this whole, like when you do these espionage things that everyone is doing and Nick Fury is, you know, the master at it. So seeing him, seeing him at play is great and talking with people and you're getting character development through that and history. It's really cool to see that. And I thought the writing was pretty solid and the acting was exceptional. Um, and it, it, again, for a show that you're, there's a, well, the show with with shapeshifters and, and what in espionage and, you know, all that stuff there's a lot you have to depend on with dialogue and, you know, and I feel like more so than even any other kind of Marvel show you can do. Um, maybe, maybe the exception of Miss Marvel, because you're, you're based on a lot of family stuff. There's a lot of interaction you need to have in that, which, which we all loved. Oh, not we all, but a lot of us loved in that previous series. We also, that was probably the strongest point. Um, of that show and, and I think with with Secret Invasion I definitely my favorite moments have definitely been when it, it actually seems to have been fine but moments like this is what I think I really kind of like really kind of sunk my teeth into and really liked. just kind of get more character development in and, and history absolutely. building absolutely
0: this is the key like this has been what we have talked about whether whether we identified it as we have many times quite plainly or It's just the effect that it's had on us. And when I say us, I'm I'm not just talking about you and I. I'm talking about a lot of you listening to this podcast of this is why a lot of what we love about the MCU is like, yeah, spy games and action sequences and chases and fights and all that stuff. Look, all that stuff is a ton of fun. But the reason why we've kept coming back. But those things can get old. The reason why we've kept coming back to these stories over and over again and what's made each one feel Different from the one before it. It's because it's when they've taken times like these, like see, scenes such as these, to dive into these characters and explore who they are on a deeper level, even for characters who've been around literally from the beginning with Nick Fury of the MCU. And we get a chance to really discover more about this guy, despite having been on so many adventures with him already. And I think that that's it. I mean, if there's any secret to the MCU, it's been the emphasis on character and the emotional arcs for these characters. And so I, I totally agree with you. Like, this is such a plot heavy show. And I know I'm I'm saying a little bit more about the second episode in a I assure you a very non-spoiler way. But throughout the first two episodes and what I responded to so strongly in, in seeing it, not to say that it's perfect and there will be criticisms that come up, but Part of what I responded to so strongly in a very positive way was that it was doing that these sorts of things that we like so much in the MCU, which is, yes, there's a big plot that they have to explain. But as they do that, there's still t- and there's a lot of action and everything else. But as they do those things, they're still investing the time. They're still giving these characters moments like this scene between Fury and Falsworth or the scene between Fury and Talos or a couple more scenes That we're going to be talking about as this episode goes on between Talos and Gaia, Fury and Maria Hill, that they've given us these types of scenes that are just so essential to our ability to really invest in these characters. So that way, not only do we enjoy these scenes, but then the other stuff that we enjoy, the actions, the chases, the explosions, the battles, the fights, all of those different things that we that we love we continue to love those and they don't get old because we're invested in the people involved in those sequences. And so I think that is, that's huge in in the storytelling of the MCU. And so I was really happy to see the emphasis on it in right, right out the gate with this very first episode of, uh, of secret invasion. So, uh, moving on from that sequence. So we finally get a chance to meet Gravik or we at least get to see Gravik's operation. Um, new Skrullos. It is you know three hundred some kilometers outside of uh, outside of Moscow. Gaia, played by Amelia Clark, is and of course the daughter of Talos. Uh, welcomes a new recruit, Beto, played by Samuel uh, Adawumi. We learned that there are over five hundred strong in New Skrullos. There are warriors who get to leave. Everyone else has to stay. But for the warriors, we see them in their shells all the time, so that way they get identified by humans and Skrulls alike in the same way. The bonus to that methodology, the guy I just explained, is that the studio saves a bunch of money on makeup, <laughs> prosthetics, and CG. So happy accident uh, that that works. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I don't have a problem with having their their plot justification for why the actors are not going to be in scroll makeup or having the CG of transitioning from uh, scroll form to shell form and, and back and forth. I'm fine with it. I really don't have, um yeah. I really don't have an issue with it. I, I get it and it works. So, and it does help sell the idea of a scroll. You know, when we see a human that they might be a scroll when we know that they really operate that way all the time. So I get it. I'm fine with it. Um, we do see a Skrull getting a new shell, taking the face, and then taking a memory with the little memory extraction machine that we saw in Captain Marvel. Remember when Talos was scrolling through mm-hmm. uh, Carol slash Veer's memories uh, in that first movie? I liked that callback. Um, so that was really cool. And so I, I like just the way they kind of honored the, the, ima- the little b- bits of Skrull mythology that we got up until this point, at least within the MCU adaptation of it, um, I thought was really cool. But I, I like this scene. I, I like this setup for it. And what I also liked the most about it, though, was kind of their the, the code phrase to get in there, the, their purpose, their dream, a home in my own skin. I think if you look at that statement and you look at that being the dream, the guiding principle of, of what their cause is, of what they are fighting for, right away when we talk about shedding some light on the perspective of the antagonist... I think that phrase gets you pretty close to seeing what their point might be. Um, Again, not to condone any violent actions that they take or any of the things that we're going to see throughout the course of this series, but to at least understand and have some compassion for the perspective that got them there. I think that phrase home in my own skin uh, goes a long way.
1: Yeah, I I liked all this. I mean, like you said, Sean, I expected that when, when I was watching this, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You, you have to you know make sure they stay hidden for, for many different reasons, maybe for detection too. Cause they probably know like if they can't, if they are, are closer to being, um, I don't know. I, I kind of justified in my head a little bit to being like, they have to stay close and have to keep them alive in order to kind of scrolls are
0: method actors. That's it.
1: it, it yeah. Kind of like that. Exactly. Essentially. Right. So I like that. I, I was fine. Um, Amelia Clark, I think is such an underrated actress, you know, like I, everything I watch her in, I always like, you know, and she's just, there is something about her. That is, is she's such a, a, she has a very like, uh, a presence. I always say when actors and actresses have presence, whatever. Um, I'm not I wouldn't say she has a presence that makes me go, man, she's like, she commands the screen, but she, there is something there. And I don't know. I think she's just an underrated actress. I think she's really good. And, um, I loved her in this. I loved seeing her, you know, and and this, and and knowing, kind of knowing already who she was, and and knowing what that was, what this backstory was going to be. It was interesting. So, yeah, it was good to get all this kind of backstory out, and and knowing too, like how big the scrolls have gotten. Again, I it kept feeding that idea of these thirty years, Sean. What does that mean? What have they been doing? I, I think there is, to be honest, this is my own quick speculation. I think they're they are in they're in touch with something bigger than outside this the, of the series. That's just my whole assumption, and I think they've been building for a reason, not because I think not just because of Earth, but I think the Avengers being disbanded after Thanos is going to be a reason for them to act um, now and everything. So there's there's a lot there. I think that I think that they have they'll, they'll be uncovering in this next couple episodes, but. But it was great to see Amelia Clark's uh, character come out and kind of be in, in full form. And I, I, again, I think she's a great actress. So it was cool to kind of see her going
0: kind of get introduced. Yeah, she is awesome. She's amazing. I mean, of course, most famously known for Game of Thrones. But look, she's been fantastic in everything that I've seen her in. And certainly when you think about moral complexity for an antagonist or protagonist, depending on the moment, depending on the point of view, Amelia Clark gets that, and certainly knows how to portray that. And so, yeah, I thought she was great in this first episode, um, which I, I mean would have had no reason to expect anything less. And I'll save a few more of my comments for her for when we get to some of the other mm-hmm. more emotional yeah. scenes that we get um, with her. But uh, beyond uh, beyond this uh, new Skrullos, then we see Fury and uh, Team Fury. So that's Nick Fury, Maria Hill, and Talos. Uh, looking in on a meeting that Fallsworth is having in her office with Derek, played by Tony Curran, so some other authority figure for MI6, and they're talking about their plan to go find the person who's making the bombs for the Skrulls. And there's a line of, and then I, I, what I also like about this episode is the friendship between Talos and Fury and the back and forth between the two of those characters. And when Taylor, when they get to joking about whether or not Talos is good-looking. There's a good line by Fury about having seen a lot of good-looking scrolls, and Talos isn't one of them. I just thought that was funny. The chemistry between, you know, the, the buddy chemistry between Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury and Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, just, I I can't believe that that happened in the way that it has in the MCU. It's worth calling out. It's why I got uh, so excited about this show when it was initially Announced and they talked about it being Nick Fury and Talos. Ever since we learned that about this series, I got that much more excited about it. And I guess should have been excited enough by the name Secret Invasion, except I'm not the biggest Secret Invasion comic book fan. But what I was a huge fan of was Talos and Fury and that friendship in Captain Marvel and the little bit of it that we got in Spider Man Far From Home. But I like that for as as silly and fun as it is, and it's really funny in this particular moment, that there is a genuine emotional friendship at the core of it to see that that is something that's developed over these past 30 years, I, I thought was very fulfilling as, uh, as a viewer. But in any event, they find out what MI6's plan is, so then it's just up to them to beat them to the punch. And that's also going to cause them to intersect with uh, Gaia, who is on a mission to find the same supplier of the bombs that the Skrulls are going to use. So in any event, uh, we check back in at New Skrullos, and we meet uh, a lieutenant of Granix, uh, or of Gravik's uh, character named Pagan, played by Killian Scott. Uh, we meet Gravik, and there's a key moment here um, in Kingsley Benadir Another outstanding actor. I mean, the cast that they've been able to put together for Secret Invasion. I mean, we're pretty used to these stellar casts for MCU projects. I mean, it it's another thing that we could take for granted, but we definitely shouldn't. That there are this many amazingly talented people who still want to come and, and play in this universe and deliver such incredible work uh, in the process. And so, Kingsley Benadire has one of my favorite subtle moments in this episode when Pagan mentions that Nick Fury is back on Earth. Just watch the the subtle shift in the facial expression from Gravik that points to something personal there. And Talos alluded to it earlier as well, um, of Gravik taking it particularly hard when Fury left and didn't come back. So obviously there's something there. There's some history between these characters that's being pointed at. In uh, in this episode, and so I, and and look, that's that's part of it. There has to be something, right? And and we don't know. We didn't meet Gravic, or at least if, if we did, we didn't know it in Captain Marvel. So that's on subsequent episodes to define to define where that came from. But if Talos's line wasn't enough, that little that little clue from Gravic on Kingsley Benedier's face was enough to say that there is there's a history there, and, and this is. Yes, there's a a very there's a broader cause that Gravik is trying to um, achieve. You know that he is working in pursuit of uh, with his mission. But there's also, I mean, that already would be personal enough. But there's something particularly personal uh, with respect to Nick Fury, and, and I'm looking forward to learning more about what that is.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's where. Again, the whole 30 years and what and what why Fury hasn't given them, or, or in their mind, given them a new planet, that to me is one of the most intriguing things of the series, and I think that that's going to be a major plot point going forward, and I think that's, and obviously there's, it goes probably deeper than that, like you're insinuating there, and like I think that that's intriguing too, but I think it all kind of comes to a head with the fact that why has Nick Fury even tried to find them at home? Like that to me, I think is also kind of interesting because what if Nick Fury was so busy? He just, I mean, literally just could not like, I don't have time to find an intergalactic planet uh, for you guys because, and maybe, or maybe, you know, we go back to the Avengers, right? Where, you know, he, they went, the reason they formed the Avengers is because of Thor, like, or, or yeah. whatever, you know, the whole idea of like, they found out about the gods. What if he's like keeping them, keeping them at bay because he doesn't want to them. To you know, he wants to keep them in sight basically, right? Yeah. Like
0: maybe Nick Fury shouldn't have kept them in a holding pattern for 30 years, exactly.
1: Like, I think there, there's find us to a home,
0: that. but at some point, there right. was the and I know obviously Fury's not the one in charge of the deep space travel, that's Carol's part, but the other scrolls are still there on Earth and they're coming back to Earth saying we didn't find anything. So, at what point is in whether that's in Gravik's mind or Gaia's mind, because Gaia clearly at this point is leaning more toward, I mean, she won't be by the end of the the episode, but at this point, she's leaning more in in Gravik's direction and, and his philosophy. And so obviously there are Skrulls who felt like at some point, if there was no other home that was readily available, that Nick Fury, rather than just air quotes, protecting them by keeping their existence a secret, maybe should have transitioned to helping in whatever way he could to make the place they were already living a suitable home for them, where they could be home in their own skin. Like, I, I feel like that is something that uh, very clearly is informing the, the scrolls' perspective on, on some of this. and I, I think it will go deeper than that, and we'll we'll see as yeah. the show, of course, carries on. But I've just really liked that great little moment there from Kingsley Ben Adir. But then when they go to uh, Gaia is assigned the task of going to collect the bombs. So that means that she and her dad Talos and, of course, Nick Fury are all going to the same place and Gaia is able to carry out her assignment. She retrieves the bombs. She ends up getting tailed by um, by Maria Hill and then we see uh, as Fury has their inner has an, Fury and Talos catch up with the supplier of the bombs, and as we see um, as this is uncovered, I, I like this whole sequence. I like Fury when they when they catch the lie because this guy who designed the bombs was talking about how he was going to go meet up with his wife, but they already did their homework. They already know this guy doesn't have a wife, and when Fury's saying as far as lying goes, everybody gets one. Nobody gets two, and that just keeps the tension going to where we get the actual fight between Talos and this other character, who turns out to, of course, be a Skrull. And even though Talos is losing this fight, he makes it very clear he doesn't want Fury to intervene because Fury is going to intervene with a gun and kill this person and kill this other Skrull. And Fury finally does when it becomes clear that Talos needs the help. But Talos, even then, is is still bothered by this. I told you not to. And I think that's from Talos' perspective, and that's why I love moments like this, because it gets into that emotional complexity where, for a character like Talos, he doesn't agree with the Skrulls who are taking this level of action, he doesn't agree with what they're doing, and he's going to do everything he can to stop it, at the same time, he's not trying to be violent against them because I don't there's a part of him that maybe doesn't hold this entirely against them there I'm sure there's a part of Talos that feels guilty that feels responsible as the leader of this group as a member of the Scroll Council on Earth for the past 30 years who feels like part of that responsibility for finding a new home fell on his shoulders and for any scrolls who are upset that it's taken this long and that because it took this long there should there was another obvious solution that Talos did took no steps or not enough steps to help them achieve that's why they've some of them have gone this direction so I, I do think there's a part of Talos that still feels responsible for every scroll on earth and that's why he doesn't want just because I'm losing a fight he doesn't want fury to kill them he doesn't want any of these scrolls to get hurt. I mean I think he realizes that in some way shape or form that's going to be unavoidable in certain cases but he's gonna do everything he can to avoid it. And it would only be an absolute last resort. And he didn't feel that was the case there with Fury. It's not like it created this immediate grudge that broke up the friendship of Fury and Talos, but Talos taking a moment to let Fury know that he wasn't okay with that. And what that, what I think that says about Talos is great. And that's when we're talking about these little moments and what they mean in the midst of the bigger action and spy game plotting and all of that, That's what makes this it's moments like that that make this a great story.
1: Yeah, I I think this is this is another part where it's a minor criticism where some of the action scenes you can tell it's it's more aimed at TV and less, um, in my opinion, for like than a feature film. And I I don't know. And I like the show a lot. And I think it's evident that I, I, I really like a lot of what's going on. My biggest criticism, I think I told you, Sean, the other day is that it feels like a TV for better, or for worse sometimes and how it's shot and how the action is. And it's not like, and again, that's not, that's not completely fair to the series because it's a TV show. Um, the problem is when you're comparing it to uh, for me, to a film because we're the MCU, it's just, it's hard because it's like, I think of winter soldier and those action scenes are incredible, you know, and, and that's hard and you can't compare it They're two apples and oranges, you know, because the TV medium is different than the film medium and the budgets are, allocated differently, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it's just a little distracting because I I like the scene. I think it's great. I love the acting. It just felt like very kind of like just not the highest of quality as far as from a film to TV perspective. So it still was fun. I still liked it a lot. And I thought it was very effective. I mean, you have Mendelssohn and Jackson basically chewing up scenery for like, you know, it's so good. And I loved it. Um, but it just, it just kind of distracts me a little bit when I'm like, oh, yeah, this is obviously a TV show. It's a little bu- a bit of a bummer, but all that aside, I love this. And again, I like the idea, again, they're building the character They're They're, they're setting you up with this, with, with Talos for a reason, right? Like what exactly, you know, he's taking a lot of this blame and, you know, because I think about this too, you know, Nick Fury, you know, has been kind of probably was, let's assume he's been putting this off for 30 years. Think about if you're Talos, right? Like he's the guy who's been defending Dick Fury and he's like, right. yeah, like, so he's almost, like, he feels the guilt obviously. And that's what we're getting from. Does he turn tail later on? Like, I, you know, as far as like, does he turn on, you know, turn heel, you could say, I was trying to say earlier uh, for you, Sean, this for your wrestling fans. Yeah,
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think that's if fair. Talos were going to make that turn, he's already had sufficient reason and sufficient time to do it. But just because I don't think he's going to turn and all of a sudden take Gravic's side, it's him not approving of the action. It's him not approving of the you know the the philosophy that's gotten them to this place to where they've been able to justify the ethics of of what they're doing and killing a lot of innocent people and including killing Skrulls. I think Talos understanding why they're doing it. And feeling his some sense of responsibility and how things got to this place is not at all the same as agreeing ultimately with what they're doing, and so I I think that's where. But that's the complex, the moral and ethical complexity that I, I think is really fascinating to dive into. And I think that's what you get from that is what you get from Talos in this episode. And there's there's a level of compassion that's there of. I disagree with you. I'm going to do what I can to stop you, but he still values their lives, and so I think that is a very um, obviously it's not always going to be achievable, as we see in in this sequence. But again, that in Talos's mind, it wasn't even in that last resort type of uh, that last resort type of territory. But I, I thought it was a really great scene. the The action honestly never really bugged me in this episode. I. It didn't really stand out to me in any sort of negative way. At the same time, it didn't jump out to me either in a positive way, as we've seen them do a pretty good job of in some action sequences in these shows. But look, um, I will always if you're delivering in the emotional character scenes, if that's firing on all cylinders and your action is a little underwhelming. I'd I'd rather it be that way than the reverse. I'd that's ra- a good point. That's yep. that's generally the way I feel about uh, about storytelling. But anyway, uh, continuing on. So as we know, uh, Gaia was able already had the bombs. Hill was trailing her. They fight. Gaia wins fairly easily. Uh, Talos uh, ends up pursuing Gaia, and then it's the father daughter reunion that is Talos' first opportunity to tell Gaia that her mother has passed away, and when she asks how, he says, why don't you ask the people you work for? So there we get our, our hint at uh, a, a responsibility on the part of Gravik, and there's another one later, um, that Gravik was responsible for the death of Soren. So obviously this conflict that we're seeing escalating to this, this peak in, at least for now anyway, this peak in this very first episode obviously this is something that has been going on for a while but there's another key line here when uh when Talos before he realizes this guy when he gives a warning and and he says last warning and she says it's what you always say but there's always another and that that line from Gaius says a lot. And I think it reveals why I think Talos internally feels some responsibility is that idea of there's you always say last warning, but there's always another. It basically means that Talo is, Talos is always willing to say something, but he's not always willing to follow through on the necessary action. Now, who des- who decides what that necessary action is and whether or not that's actually necessary or the right thing to do? That's where you can open it up for Debate, but obviously there's a lot of scrolls out there, and, and Gaia is one of them who feel like maybe there's been a lot of talk from Talos, but not necessarily enough action or enough follow through, and maybe that's got them to the point where they are now as dissatisfied as as so many of them are. But I, I liked Gaia opening that door to her perspective, that also I think shed some light. On some other scrolls' perspective, when it comes to uh, when it comes to Talos, and he says to give him the bombs and he'll protect her, but she says. Then another big line is when she says, "You can't protect anyone." So mm. that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty hard for a father to hear from a daughter. You know, one of his oh, job yeah. protect the child, and um, here's the daughter saying, "You can't." Not only can you not protect me, you can't protect anyone, and I think that's that, that's another very strong hint at, at where Gaia's feelings are that. Ultimately, for from the perspective of a lot of these scrolls, Talos has, fa- has failed to protect them, that one of his jobs in protecting them was finding them a new home, even if, I, I would imagine from a lot of their perspectives, even if that home was the place they were already living, that at, at some point it was on Talos as his role of protector, as finder of the new place to live. It was his job to address this, even if that meant putting himself in conflict with Nick Fury
1: yeah and i th- and i like this this stuff with gaia and and, ta- and ta- i want to say ta- it's talos right i'm saying that right yeah. i want to say talos i want to say talos me me screw up names can't believe it um the, the thing is with again i love these two these two actors talking with you know you have uh uh my god oh my god amelia em- Clar- clark yeah, I mean I, I want to call Emily Clark. Oh my god, I'm it's late. Uh Amelia Clark and uh Ben Mendelssohn, again, two great, great performers. Uh, chewing, again, chewing up scenery that you bring up the great point. The whole if you bring emotional aspect to the show, the action scenes are kind of whatever. And I loved this idea of pulling that, you know, you there's different dynamics of what's going on. You you understand the perspectives of everyone, but they're warped through their own, you know, their own, like, you know, uh, ideas, right, and their own their own motivations and moralities and things like that, and you know, obviously the bad guy has his own like, probably justification, and Gaia has her own justification, and you have Ben Middleton, who's kind of, you know, Talos is, is also in his own, you know, right, what what he's doing for everyone and with Nick Fury, they all have these, there's, there's a very simple, like, there's not a great explanation or great great um, solution, is what I should say, to what their problem is and that therein lies i think the interesting idea of the show is that everyone probably has a point of what they're doing it's not so cut and dry right because it is that complicated idea everyone has this their own like uh reason to be right and i think you've seen these two relationships going on you understand completely both both their perspectives and i love that and i love the fact that scrolls have in my opinion, never been written better <laughs> in a long, long time. I mean, as as a whole. I mean, there's there's characters in the comics that I like a lot that are scrolls that I want to get into. But um, maybe on a fan plus we can talk about my top five favorite, favorite scrolls. But that's a whole different podcast, obviously. Um, but uh, but I will say that. It's nice to see the, the scrolls have more this, have more meaning in this in this in the MCU than in the comic books, and it, I like seeing these two relation this relationship go on. Um, it's also in the comic books. If this was a comic book, Sean, they would be probably scrolls, not just their human form. Which again, it's going back to the right whole idea when of how the you scrolls say are of it. <laughs> when it's just
0: yeah when when it's just a conversation between scrolls and nobody else is in the room, then they're usually in scroll form, but a lot less expensive to. Draw scrolls than you know make actors look like them. So I get it. Right. Um, yeah. Several more actor, you know, several more hours in the makeup chair every day uh, for Amelia Clark for Ben Mendelssohn. So I I totally get all the practical reasons why that doesn't work so much. And again, the story justification for it works well enough for me. I think this scene between. Gaia and Talos was really great in terms of building so much emotional tension between these characters and, and communicating so much about them in very short order. I mean, when we look at the the economy of emotion in this episode, it's really strong where they're mm. they're just stealing these little moments that say so much about these characters. I mean, here's a father trying to reach his daughter and a daughter who wants to hear that message, but also has a really hard time believing in it based on some of her past experience and, and frustration. And so it's a daughter who's really grown impatient with his approach, as as many have. And I mentioned before, I wanted to say a couple things about Amelia Clark's performance. I mean, the way her heart breaks, but then also it, it feeds into the anger and resentment towards her father just upon the immediate mention of what has happened to her mother. And then, even though she tries to stay strong in that moment, when she walks away, she then, of course, you know, when she has a moment to herself, then she she breaks down and and absorbs that loss and absorbs that grief. And I think Amelia Clark was her performance was stellar throughout that whole sequence. If I had any issue with it, um, and, and this is just where you get into the heightened reality of of superhero stories. She didn't really have to get away. It was kind of a gentle shove, and then she, and then Talos just kind of let her climb up the ladder and get away. She's still carrying bombs, so I do think there should have been a bit more of an attempt to um, to stop her or a stronger getaway by Gaia. Um, just the 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 not so rough shove, and then slowly ascending up the ladder and just walking around the corner. That's not enough to get away with bombs, uh, I I think. So I I appreciate that the scene was about the emotion. I think it could have done all the same things while also just coming up with a slightly more dramatic getaway. Since the the urgent task of stopping her from getting the bombs back to Gravic was still very, very, uh, still very important. So that I would have liked to have seen handled uh, a little bit differently. Just from I don't know, you could call that logic, but I think it's a, a bit more than that. So. Uh, next, we get to Fury buying a round of uh, buying around of drinks to settle a, a particularly grumpy bar patron, and he's there for a chess game with Hill, and even Maria Hill wants to know why he's been gone, and he says he had a crisis of faith, and then why did he stay up there? Well, he didn't come the or why is he back now? Well, that crisis of faith, whatever that is, it followed him up there, and also. Fury says he owes it to Talos to be back. And Hill says, you sure, you sure you're not talking about someone else. So who is she hinting mm-hmm. at? Is it Gravik? Is there somebody else that Nick Fury feels he owes something to to come back right now? We'll leave that to uh, another episode. But when she does ask that question, it really does stop Fury. And you see that from Samuel L. Jackson and his performance, that that question really registers and maybe... He hadn't necessarily thought about it, but the answer starts. You could see it on Samuel L. Jackson's face that the the answer starts to become clear in his mind. But Hill becomes the latest character in this episode to mention that um, that Fury is different. When Fury, when she tells him it's his time to his turn to make a chess move and he's undecided, that's what worries her. He's normally the person who's three steps ahead, but she's not seeing that anymore. Um, He is different since the blip. And she didn't even, it wasn't even her idea to call Fury in for this mission. It was Talos who said to call in Nick Fury. So clearly no one except maybe Talos thinks that Fury is up for this. Even Maria Hill, who's been working side by side with Nick Fury in all these adventures we've seen throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even she's somebody who has lost at least some faith in Nick Fury. And I think that says a lot about how Nick Fury's choices have impacted other characters in the MCU and I also think that it says a lot for Nick Fury that he probably was aware a lot of uh, of a lot of these things and he was avoiding it for whatever else was whatever drove him to Saber and whatever kept him up there that I think we'll get a chance to see revealed and we do see that he is haunted by the blip we see him remembering back to that moment that we saw from the post-credit scene in Avengers Infinity War but I, I think it's The question of how Fury felt during the blip, we already kind of knew. I think the question is, what went through Fury's mind when he came back? And so we already saw that moment of Fury turning to dust. But what about when he came back? That's the question. uh, One of the big questions that I have that I I hope we, since we got a flashback to Infinity War post credit scene, I hope we get another flashback to the moment that Nick Fury came back because we just haven't seen it. And I know we didn't get to see that for most of the characters who came back from the blip. But I think for Fury, since clearly it's impacted him so much and is still impacting him in the story, it'd be great to take it all the way back to that moment. Or in some other fashion, you know, they can explore that for us. But this is another uh, another one of those scenes that they just steal these moments away to, to have this conversation. And this is the sort of just honest conversation that I, I think I always would have wanted between Nick Fury and Maria Hill. Cause we haven't gotten a lot of this between the two of them. And I'm not going to go over all of my criticisms of Maria Hill again, right here and right now as a character. Um, But more moments like this, I think would have been better over the course of their time in the MCU, but credit to Colby Smulders for when she finally gets her shot to really, um, to really have a, a scene like this with Nick Fury. And not that she hasn't had other good scenes in the MCU, she has, but she was up for it right here. And I think it's one thing for an agent we don't really know and are just meeting to question Nick Fury. It's one thing for maybe Gravic to question Nick Fury, although we don't see them interact in this episode, but we know obviously he has been at some point. Um, And even if uh, he was questioning Fury without Fury being present... Talos hinting at it, but although we know Halo, Talos must have believed in, in Nick Fury because he called him into this in the first place. But there's so much doubt from Nick Fury. But when it comes from Maria Hill, I think that's when it means the most. Uh, besides, you know, seeing Fury doubt himself. But from the perspective of another character, Maria Hill, as the person who's been side by side with Nick Fury this whole time, be the one to and the moment that really struck with me is just her saying like I'm not even the one who called you in like I didn't even think this was a good idea to bring you in that Maria Hill wouldn't call Nick Fury is you know as revealing as any piece of information that we got from this episode
1: yeah this was again I didn't we know something's going on with Fury and, and, and they've done a great job of setting that up and where does that leading and I think the arc that Nick is going on I'm very I'm very intrigued on and and I I don't know I, I really don't know where they're going with it and I think that there's I'm one I do again I'm, I'm not trying to get deep in speculation the only thing I'm gonna say is it maybe it will lead to a character that's not in the series but eventually in the series I'll just say that potentially um They've kind of, you know, because yeah, in the comics we can go on a lot, a lot of complicated things with the original Nick Fury, but there is, I'm, I'm curious with the idea of Samuel Jackson kind of being older, and we talked about, you know, where does he, where does he go from here? I'm curious. I'll just leave it at that. I'll, I'll save my speculation for a different episode, but I'm curious what that means and and where he's at in his life and everything. So, because another thing here we got to remember, and I, I don't think he had this back in the um. Uh, back in a no way home or not No Way home, but uh, uh homecoming and everything was the eye patch. Like he's not having the eye patch right now. And I think that's very significant um, just as a character, right? So that's another, that's another aspect of the character that I think is interesting that they're, they're purposely showing us obviously very obviously. And what does, what does that mean? I think it, it all means something in my opinion. So I'm curious if that all ties in with this character and w- what she, Murray Hill is talking about.
0: I think it's Nick Fury, consciously or, or subconsciously, kind of shedding his own mystique a little bit. Like I don't feel like that mm. guy anymore. And uh, if, if that eye sure. patch is part of his, you and, and I mean, there's the one he he burned in Winter Soldier, but he's worn one since. And so yeah, it since yeah. So like, it wasn't like he he gave up on it all the way back then. So as far as why he's not wearing it now, I, I think there's a part of him who doesn't feel like that guy and. Um, and maybe he does want to be seen a little bit more. Maybe Nick Fury is craving some sort of emotional connection and, and some sort of something more genuine and, and something a little more whole than he's had in the past. I, I feel like maybe there's some of that that's, uh, you know, whether it's Nick Fury not feeling like himself or reaching out for something or whatever it, it is, uh, I do think it's it, it him not wearing an eye patch. I. I don't think it's so much a, a plot choice to try and say this is Nick Fury, you know, because this is a Skrull Fury or this is a whatever. Like, I, I, to me, it has less to do with that as it, as what it's saying about how Nick Fury might feel about himself. And just another manifestation of that is really more of the the direction that I lean. But what do I know? And And we'll find out as we watch more of these episodes. But um meanwhile Gaia is dropping off the bombs. She is suggesting a postponement to the plan, but that's a no-go. The plan is going to carry forward. So she sneaks away to meet with Talos and he to just add a little another layer to it in case the question wasn't enough. Um Talos says your mother died while you were working for her killer. You have one chance to save yourself. Um and I think you know that that's why you're here is a uh, paraphrasing a bit of what Talos was saying to her and it's, I think that's Talos, it's very, I mean, there's the obvious component of this, of this is his daughter, and he loves her, believes in her, and believes that she ultimately wouldn't follow through with this plan. I would say she kind of followed through quite a bit by getting the bombs and taking them back to the guys who intend to do the bombing. That's already pretty bad, but at least she's making some choice now to try and stop it from happening. And I think that, For this moment, I think this is the kind of thing that obviously Talos wants to reach his own daughter, but I also feel like this is what Talos feels is possible for other scrolls as well, that if you can just reach them and ask the questions about whether or not this is what they really want to do, do you really think that this is okay? Like, we might feel like we want a home, we might feel like this Earth should be our home, how we feel about that, and, and all of those, and we can have all of those debates, all of those arguments, but is this really the path that we want to go down? And I know specifically, obviously he doesn't want his daughter to go down that path, but I also think that there's a part of Talos that doesn't want anybody to go down that path and wants to reach them just like he was able to reach his daughter. Um, I, I And maybe I'm just uh, reading too much into it, but I feel like that's where some of that compassion uh, from Talos is coming from, and that's what we saw when he didn't want Fury uh, to shoot the guy who, who built these bombs. So... As Gaia lays out the plan for the following day, it's gonna, the bombing is going to happen the following day. It's going to be for Unity Day and the festival there, and there are three bombs, three couriers, and we know that she'll eventually use some infrared spray on the backpack so they'll be able to track where the bombs are. Uh, but Gravik knows that Talos is going to be there, um, and that already hints at, and, and Gaia says as much, that she doesn't know everything, and therein lies the the flaw within their plan or the weakness within their plan uh, Talos goes ahead and informs Fury and uh, and Hill, and that's where again it's another example of there's a, a lot of plot. We have this group of scrolls that, in pursuit of a new home or making Earth their new home, want to do X, Y, and Z in order to have humanity basically all kill itself and all kill each other, and they'll be left to take over whatever's left of the planet, and the scrolls will have their new home and we have Nick Fury who here's this spy that you don't that you didn't know before Fallsworth who is part of this and here's MI6 and here's the president and here's what Rhodey's doing you, there's a lot of plot and a lot of table setting that you have to do over the course of this first episode mm-hmm. but none of it ever at any point comes at the expense of giving characters these types of scenes where it is just about the raw emotion of these characters and and what they're dealing with um, as it pertains to themselves as individuals and their relationships with one another. And that just continues to be a a strength of this episode. And I, you know, in a non-spoiler way, I'll I'll say I I didn't end up feeling differently and feeling like it was uh, some horrible reverse when we get to the second episode. So I, I think that is where Clearly, they they put character and emotion at, at the forefront of this series, despite all of the spy game plotting that they had to do, and and that is, I think the the greatest success story of this episode.
1: Yeah, I think that to me is what the biggest part of this episode is: is that it does a lot um, of exposition and and ex, expo, uh, explaining of things in a very dramatic uh, the a dramatic and interesting way. And I think the biggest thing is the pacing was really well done. Also when yeah. you're doing that much exposition and, and everything it's, you have to have it flow certainly from, from on the screen. And that's an underrated aspect of filmmaking in general. Right. Um And, it, and whether it be in TV or, or, or movies, the thing is, I, I think, with, especially when you're depending on so much exposition. Between it's hard because
0: there's no definitive right answer. Like every story mm-hmm. has its own answer, right? You can't just exactly. say, everybody do everything really fast. Well, that doesn't work because then some things, if you do it that way, then something feels shortchanged. Mm-hmm. Well, slow it down. Yeah. Well, some things can't be can't be slowed down. Or if they exactly. are, you really feel it like it, you're totally right. It's it's one of the hardest tricks to to pull off because every time you try to tell a story, that story has its own answer to what the pacing ought to be.
1: Yeah. So I, I so I think that the, the biggest thing I could take away from this episode that I loved is the fact that with the little action we've got, which was not the most dynamic again, like you said, like it wasn't you know, you didn't stand out to you as good or bad, which is insane. something maybe. But um, that being said, the fact that we both really enjoyed this episode and it really was just about strictly on the performances and I think of the uh, the, the, the themes and the dynamics of the characters. It's a really strong, is a really strong start and uh, a very optimistic uh, way of saying, I think this series could be maybe special. I don't know. I mean, I I always go into these Marvels, th- you know, things wanting them to be the best and be special, and and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're they're, they're not quite there. They're close, and sometimes I think they're okay. and I think this is something that I'm very intrigued if it can pull off scrolls for me and make me care and be really on the edge of my seat, which I was at times in the series or in this episode, at least for a little bit, I there's a lot to look forward to in this series. And I, and I I almost, in my opinion, I think we could be getting a good setup for a lot of different uh, things and, and characters in this, uh, the MCU and overall, but not like, it's not like it's going to be like a cliffhanger kind of things, but it's going to be paving the road for a lot of different, different roads that they will be kind of going branches, if you will, going off of going the multiverse uh, idea. But um, I do feel that that's what this show could be setting up by the end of the series. So, but again, we'll kind of tackle all those as we get to this, as we go on in the series.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have uh, one last scene to finish up this spoiler review. And that is, of course, the the bombing itself. So they're trying their best to track the bags, not the people, with the infrared spray to help them out. But as Gaia said and has proved to be a fatal flaw in the plan, that she didn't know everything. And and also, Gravik knew that they were going to be there. So that meant that he was going to plan for that and be a few steps ahead. And he really was. Um, Hill, Fury, and... Uh, Talos, it becomes pretty clear that they really stood no chance at stopping this bombing, and Fury is distracted by all the recognizes, recognizable faces that he saw throughout the episode, the little girl, the grumpy bar patron, and more, and turns out that was indeed Gravik, and as soon as Fury realizes that, Gravik triggers the bomb, there's the big boom, and in the chaos, as the bombs are going off, Maria Hill sees Nick Fury, or so she thinks, and then she is shot by Fury, and Hill's last words to Fury before he is pulled away from her, and we end with the last shot of Hill just laying there, very, very still, bleeding out. Um, She says, I had to turn on the subtitles because I couldn't actually hear it, but uh, Hill says it was you to, uh, to Nick Fury, and then we cut to our credits. I thought as far as an action sequence goes, Paul, this one did stand out in a good way. I thought this looked this looked pretty impressive visually for this sequence. It looked very big, but it also at the same time, I think they did a good job. I mean, you could say it's a a budget decision, but I also think creatively it it worked. They kept the camera pretty tight on a lot of the action, which I think sold the chaos of it Um, from that perspective, the chaos and the confusion of that, entire th- of that entire sequence, I, I think was essential. And I think it was essential to keep us completely off balance to the point where when we see Fury, just like Maria Hill does, it's like a lifeline, and then you hear the gunshot. And I don't think any, any viewer, like I don't think any of us were believing for a second that Fury shot Maria Hill. It was like, okay, well, which Skrull is this? And you know, Gravik was the most likely suspect, and that was ultimately who it was. But it's just an added layer of cruelty from Gravik. We we talked about how there's personal stakes and, and personal grudges, and everything really being hinted at throughout this episode. While well, the strongest hint is, is uh, besides as I said, that expression on Gravik's face earlier in the episode. But I'd say actually probably even stronger is this: that this level of cruelty. Right? He could have. Disguise himself as anyone to shoot maria hill disguising him himself as fury to make sure maria hill sees fury be the one to shoot her that that's the last thing that she sees before she's shot like that is something that and for fury to, to know that that was the last thing for maria hill that is very very uh you know that's incredibly, it's emotionally and physically sadistic on the, on the part of Gravik, And that's part of him settling a score. And that's him doing, obviously taking out Maria Hill, but also doing the most he can to hurt Nick Fury. And so the whole setup of that whole last scene, when you talk about a way to end a first episode of a series, yeah. I can't say I, I would have seen the, I, I didn't see this ending coming for the way that it, uh, for the way that it cut out here.
1: Yeah, that was that was unexpected, but it's like the classic in the stomach, right? Um, yeah, that that was I did I did like the ending as far as like what they were setting up, and it was it was clever, like you said, it was very definitely. Again, when I say they don't stand out to me, and I, they kind of look like they're TV shows, I don't mean that necessarily as a, a complete bad thing. It just I just I'm comparing it to like Winter Soldier action scenes because that's what the most comparable thing of the series is. Um, but yeah, like the, the ending of the series or the show and the episode was very interesting. In how the, you know, the scroll, you know, they get the tricks of the people, different people. Um, I love that. Um, and the, and the double crossing with, 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 uh, it's all classic, you know, I mean, it's all classic shapeshifter stuff, right? Like, we've seen this a lot of times and or different things like this in movies and TV shows, and it, but it definitely got me. I was like, oh, god, you know, <laughs> so, um. Yeah, it was it was definitely a good way to end it. Um, But I I think Maria Hill will be fine. So,
0: well, as far as the fate of Maria Hill, um, I will just uh, uh, I'll leave that for as the series goes on. So, um, because obviously I've seen I've seen what happens next. So I'll leave it I'll leave it at that. But uh, fair enough. As far as um, as far as the the way this all came together in in this scene, though, as I was saying before. I just think they did such a good job of creating the chaos. Like you said, I mean, we know we're watching a shapeshifter show and we know at some point a Skrull is probably going to pose as Nick Fury to do something bad. Like, why wouldn't that happen? Of course, that's going to happen at some point. But I think they did a good job of letting us lose track of that, of really putting us in the chaos of the scene. So our heads are not we're not thinking with our cynical. We know how these things work. You know, superhero movie, superhero show fan sort of brain. Like, we really just get immersed in the story, which I know it's harder and harder to to do that, especially for those of us who who watch these things over and over again and see all of them over and over again. So, I really appreciate it when they can kind of, when they can throw us off balance and find a way to uh, to surprise us. And then, of course, yeah, as I said, we'll We'll talk more uh, about what happens next once everybody actually sees the uh, ones everybody actually sees what happens next. Uh, one other thing I, I said earlier in the show that we were gonna circle back to was Everett Ross um, because there was the question of whether or not Ross has been a scroll the entire time, or if we think that this is something that uh, that is more recent i mean, t b d as the series goes on, I just don't necessarily i don't even know if we need an answer to that question right this second uh, i mean i I guess my question was really more timeline based like last we saw, well, we know Ross was being freed by um we know Ross was being freed by uh the midnight angels in in Wakanda forever, so we know he's been they they helped him out of that predicament, but I guess I guess working with Maria Hill makes sense. I mean, if we're if Maria Hill is working off script on some of this stuff and, and Fury is working off book and, and not necessarily doing things that um, the U.S. government is is sanctioning or participating in, I guess this could still be in theory. And, and why would Maria Hill believe this was Ross? I guess it is possible that he could be still doing a lot of his old stuff, you know, without necessarily having, you know, being an official member of the CIA anymore.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to reserve my. I, I have th- this is a heavy answer. I'm going to wait until it's fully revealed because if it is, I've got a lot to say about it. So I'll say that. So
0: well, um, I feel like at some point, I, I think because in the comic, yeah, obviously in the comic book story, there was a lot more of. Hey, this person was a scroll for a really long time, including yep. some of these events that you, you know, were invested mm-hmm. in as an audience member. And I've always felt like that was a really tricky thing to do in the MCU because it it just completely reshapes, no pun intended, a a story that you might already know and and might already love to say that, well, this person wasn't really this person in that story because it really does go back and it like literally changes what that story was, um, at least as it pertains to that character. So that is a very tricky thing to do and i never really expected in the mcu that they would do that with somebody like an an actual avenger or uh, an or even a nick fury level character ross is almost the the smaller supporting character where i would almost be more likely to believe that they could do it but even then i don't know like i i am curious to see if the show would actually go there um, at some point and, and really say that this person for the entire time that you've known them in the MCU or at least for a, lo- a, a long a long, large chunk of the time that you've seen them in the MCU has in fact been a scroll. but then it just gets into all other sorts of questions about identity like how much of that really was them versus how much of that was a scroll with an ulterior motive or was that a scroll who had no ulterior motive who really believed in the mission like I I really don't know how that would um, how that would affect things, but I guess we'll break that down and discuss it if it actually happens and if that is something that is revealed about any given character, particularly within this show. But just to finish up my thoughts on this first episode, I thought this was a really, really strong first entry. And that really goes to my bigger criticism of uh, of the episode is that. I mean, I I think it did a good job as an episode of a spy show. It really did. Mm -hmm. But this is where, in in some ways, I mean, leaving off the show with like this sort of cliffhanger of here's Maria Hill bleeding out, Nick Fury being pulled away, and and everything that we're seeing here, you just really, really want to watch what happens next. Now, I was lucky. I got to watch what happens next. But then I still ended up running into a wall in the second episode of like, okay, it's over now and I got to wait until the third one. It's been a recurring theme that we've talked about on the show of, and we know it's something that Marvel is not going to be doing as much of in these Disney plus series, but where it really feels more like you're watching part of something as opposed to, and I know that's literally what it is. It's part one of six and I get that and I understand that and I still enjoy the weekly release schedule over the binge model and prefer it that way. I totally do, but I also understand why Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios as Feige's talked about especially with Daredevil born again how they really want to start experimenting more with truly episodic shows where it real where each show has more of its own beginning middle and end self-contained kind of story that also feeds into this serialized narrative in the way that the movies kind of have their own self-contained stories that also feed can you know some of which can still feed into a larger narrative I will be interested to see Marvel make that leap into more episodic episodes because that's it's not really a knock on it. It's an observation more than anything else. Like none of this is going to bug me once I get to have all six episodes and watch them together for Secret Invasion. But for now, sometimes it is hard in that weekly experience to just feel like you're watching a, a part of something as opposed to a, a fully, you know, a full episode that is, is satisfying in its own way. Although I would say this one in this case, it gave me enough. Um, but I, I know that that could be something that comes up, uh, in future episodes of uh, feeling like that little that getting a piece of a story rather than getting a story. Um, I feel like that's a balance that they did a better job of here in this first episode of, of secret invasion, but it is still something that, that kind of comes up, and as I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to the the next phase of of Marvel Studios as, on Disney Plus as they start to get more episodic with some of these series.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think this is definitely one of the stronger first episodes of MCU series. Um, it, maybe maybe it is the best first episode. I don't know. It feels like the first that first episodes for MCU series have been pretty like lackluster for for me anyway. Um, and this was a great, like, kind of, you know, hit you right over the head with what's going on. And, and, and it's different. And I, I hope, I really do hope this kind of changes the narrative of Marvel a little bit. I think Guardians 3 did, a, did that a little bit after Quantum uh, Mania, And I hope Secret Invasion kind of, you know, shuts people up a little bit, being like, Marvel's done, blah, 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 you know, it's uh, I did, that I, That
0: train's left the station. You're not shutting anybody up well fair enough but
1: i just hope it like for the, for the people who like are on the fence about it like right. they, they're or they're worried that, that's what i mean more than anything um that they will, will say you know what marvel had a in their opinion had a couple of hiccups whatever but I think with Guardians 3 and Secret Evasion, hopefully it'll, it'll change their, you know, get them, you know, confidence back. Cause I think that definitely will alter how they perceive things too in the future if they think that like everything is not mediocre. Um, You know, obviously it's just human nature. So I don't know. I, I think this is a good, I think Marvel is, uh, is definitely, you know, I liked Planet more than most people, but I understand the criticisms. I think Guardians 3 was fantastic, you know, fantastic. And I think Secret Evasion of is off to a great start too. So I think, I hope. Secret Invasion just keeps it going and we can get this ball, you know, back on Marvel. Can you kind of feel, get their, get their, get a little bit more confidence in what they're doing and kind of, go, like you're saying, going forward and, and focus and kind of repurpose themselves a little bit for more of their uh, episodic TV, um, Disney Plus shows. But yeah, I, I'm excited for the, this is, again, one of the better first episodes of the, uh, the Disney Plus series and um, can't wait for season uh, or season two,
0: episode two. Maybe season two also, I don't know, but uh, th- this, this feels like a one season type of show, but I I don't know, I could Fair be enough. wrong. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I, I totally uh, agree with you as far as first episodes go. Although I would say, generally speaking, I've been pretty happy with first episodes. When I, 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 I yeah, thought about that me. as when you said it, I was like, well, I don't know. Wandavision, I, I like the first episode. Although Wandavision, I didn't like that one as much. Wandavision, we immediately got two episodes, so that was a little bit different. It, yeah. it is different when when a show actually has to stand on the first episode by itself, and we don't necessarily get two right away. Um, but for the most part, I, I think the first episodes of the Marvel Studios series have been very, very strong. Usually where I've run into issues is more like episode three to five territory is where uh, I'll be interested to see how Secret Invasion does. And I don't know the answer to that because I've only seen through uh, through episode two. But I think this was a very strong start that did a great job setting the tone for this series that did a... had a lot of fun. It, not that... It's hard to describe a show like this as fun because a lot of bad stuff, uh, of, of course, happens and there's a lot of dark emotional scenes that are there. But what's fun for me is getting a chance to really invest in the characters. And I think this is this show gave me that. And what I also had fun with, as I said, was the way it brought in some of those spy game, spy genre type of tropes, the the paranoid thriller, the political thriller, all of those different things coming into it. Um, and then and you have a lot of slow burn that then just has this massive crescendo at the end of the the first episode that I thought was really really effective in, in the way they they took some of those tools that people have been using in these in these spy stories for years and years and years and they found their own way to utilize them for the purposes of their story and, and did so I, I thought in really clever and inventive ways for the, the purposes of this story and you know while a I, as I said, the, the, the trains left the station, there's always going to be people who are going to be very critical of Marvel. And I know that's going to be part of the conversation going forward. Cause especially now that just is social media with literally everything. So it, it's fine. And a lot of that's going to continue, but in terms of the, the audience that in, in good faith is looking at this stuff and evaluating the stuff and, you know, continuing to see whether or not they're, they're interested in engaging with these stories. I agree with you that I, I hope that Secret Invasion delights them in the way and impresses them in the way that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 did. Because, look, Secret Invasion is impressing me. And I, I like the idea of Marvel Studios being rewarded for doing the stuff that we like about the MCU and doing a lot of the stuff that we've said before has been some of the highlights of the MCU over the years with these types of scenes Um, And this type of character development that we got in this very first episode, that this is Marvel Studios at its best when they when they put the focus in these places. And so if the if the audience rewards them for that in kind, so Marvel Studios gets an even more recent reminder of what it is the audience is really here for and what the audience really connects with. And look, I don't think Marvel Studios has ever really lost sight of that, even if not every project is the best reflection of it. But it's just more positive reinforcement for Marvel Studios, really continuing with the approach that has made them successful over the past decade and a half. And Secret Invasion could be another example of that. All the better. But I was very, very happy with this first episode and look forward to having another look at episode two and getting a chance to talk about it with Paul and uh, for all of you who are kind enough to listen to these podcasts. Uh, But that is the end of this one. So thank you very much for listening. Make sure you check out Fan Show Plus for more talk about Marvel Studios skipping Comic-Con and other MCU news that uh, that has come up recently and of course is uh, is still to come Uh, please follow it and Fan Show Plus Patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or search for it on Apple Podcasts or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts you can find it there Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MCU Fan Show Paul where can they find you?
1: Can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's aka P Thug. Go please and subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Comic Binge, where I and my buddy Chris and a bunch of other random guests will talk about comic books and all sorts of crazy things about comic books. And we reviewed Flash. We we did a flashpoint adaptation review. And next week we're we'll gonna be doing Despite the the box office bomb that is The Flash, we're gonna be talking about Flash comic book recommendations because you know what, C- comic books will always be awesome to read regardless of what they do at the box office. So, um, I'm really excited about that episode. Lots of hardcore Flash fans gonna give us some deep cuts to go dive into. So jo- go check that out. Next month got lots of great stuff kind of going on too. So I can't wait. Go check us out there. And uh, yeah, appreciate everyone who's already has.
0: Yeah. Flash comics are pretty rad, so I I certainly recommend uh, checking out Flash comics and checking out Comic Binge for highlights of Flash comics that are worth checking out. Uh, So make sure you check that out. If you, for some reason, want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you can do so. (laughs) You may do so. It's at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.